Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Ministry of Supply and Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-pilot, Jason Snell. This time, you're space, and I'm related subjects. Oh, that's nice. It's good. Hi. Hey. Hey, buddy. It's good to meet a relative. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes, we are recording this on Valentine's Day. I guess. The most outer spacey of holidays. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, we're going to do some news uh, today. These episodes are always funny. It's hard to gauge where pre-flight checklist ends and topics begin, but uh, yeah. just a gradient of space news this week, really. It's true. We're going to start with uh, Proxima B. Of course, it was in the news. When Was that the end of last year? Um, yeah, I think so. Looking at uh, the exoplanet that was the closest to us at uh, Proxima Centauri, what, five light years away or so? And, you know, a lot of excitement and conversation about this being the closest to us. Could it be, you know, really Earth-like? And there's some new NASA research that uh, kind of puts the... Puts the brakes on that a little bit. Uh, it was research looking at uh, the rate of oxygen loss in the atmosphere on planets around um, red dwarfs, which is the type of star they're talking about. And basically these stars blast off high-energy X-rays and ultraviolet light, and they are uniquely suited to stripping oxygen off an atmosphere. So you have this erosion. We, we talked about this uh, I think in the sun episode that you know these streams of particles that come off of stars and planet some planets have magnetic fields like Earth is situated where a magnetic field protects us from this to a degree. Um, but red dwarfs, different types of energy, different types of uh, particles, and it, it seems like Proxima B and other exoplanets around red dwarf stars may have uh, trouble holding on to oxygen, which. Uh, if you think about life as we know it, of course, is a is a critical component. Not necessarily a critical component for all types of life, the types of life that we may not know about, but everything we know about says oxygen is important, and these planets have a hard time hanging on to it. Yeah, this is one of those things that um, you don't always think about, and it's something that scientists have, have been trying to understand better, but it's the dynamic evolution of the solar system and the fact that the Earth has gone through uh, periods without oxygen and, and periods with, and and uh, there's a question about the history of Mars and what was the Martian atmosphere like. We did, we did uh, that story a while ago about the idea that Mars lost a lot of its atmosphere mm-hmm. just through being kind of battered by the solar wind. And so this is interesting because this is an analysis, theoretical, right? But it's an analysis and a model of what would happen with a, a planet this close to a, a star. Because that, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit in our exoplanets episode that just because people... There is a simplified view of the habitable zone, which is like, what are the temperatures that match what we consider to be habitable? And then you map that to a a, a small red dwarf star, and it's very close to the star. And the problem with that is there are lots of questions about what happens when you that, get that close to the surface of a star, inclu- including issues of like tidal locking. And I think we mentioned like that they have flares mm-hmm. that are that are potentially an issue and could just bake the planet and, and, and kill any possible life on it. And now we get to add atmospheric erosion to the list. Oh, well, it's uh, it's tough out there in the it's a cruel universe on the streets of space. Proxima Centauri. The roughest of all neighborhoods. 
Mm. Uh, we spoke last time a lot about the political climate that NASA and science on a whole uh, finds itself in today. And uh, there's a story in the Washington Post last week that I wanted um, I wanted to bring up. Uh, a group of uh, Republicans in Congress have have formed what's called the Climate Leadership Council. I think they're not in Congress. I think this is That's this right, is yeah. largely largely retired. Uh, but prominent Republicans, it's James Baker and George Schultz, uh, a couple of council economic advisors, chairs, former Treasury Secretary. There's a bunch of uh, a bunch of them, but they're sort of elder statesmen of the Republican Party. And they have put together a carbon emissions reduction plan. Uh, the details are in the Washington Post article. Basically, it's looking at uh, you know taxing per ton of carbon dioxide emissions. Um, they're looking at forty dollars per ton. Uh, starting and then it would raise as time goes on, and you know this is um, this is a sort of real nuts and bolts way that you can attempt to limit the amount of carbon dioxide and other gases we are pumping into our atmosphere that are leading to things, uh, leading to global warming, uh, leading to you know changing weather patterns. And if you charge big companies you know real hard dollars to say if you do this you will be fined. Uh, then that can be incentive to change their ways, in theory. And this is something that has gone back and forth between, you know, between administrations, between parties. Different people approach this from different, uh, different ways. But it being a, um, a Republican Republican group putting this out there uh, is a little unusual, but something that I find. Um, I find exciting, and you know, in the in the climate of the the EPA being you know being its power being stripped away, and, and they're even being calls for it to be dismantled completely. Uh, this is a a nice change of pace. It's one of the uh, one of the challenges that we see in the political uh, landscape right now is this idea that we are um, we have had uh, opposition parties that have decided to uh, stake out stake out positions that are uh extreme because the other the other basically they've decided to politicize things like facts and this is an example of that where a lot of places are trying market-based ways to create a drag on carbon emissions right which i would say as somebody who grew up in a conservative household uh, politically um this strikes me as being very much what you'd expect a Republican plan to be. The challenge is that a lot of the people in Congress and the executive branch from the Republican Party uh, have have encouraged this belief that climate change doesn't exist. And so the, the real question is, how do you walk it back to a place where instead of saying the two sides of this argument are it exists or it doesn't, instead be it exists we agree. What do we do? And then let the two sides stake out their positions of the right, you know, the right ways to approach it. And what's encouraging about this is this is a group of prominent Republicans saying, look, this exists. Let's stop pretending it doesn't. And let's come up with something that can solve it using our principles. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm hopeful on one level because it's great that, that that this exists. I am pessimistic in the sense that there are a lot of people in Congress who um, rode to their position based on denial. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. 
talk about pad 39a for a little bit uh which is a a, a super historic piece of land uh at the cape Uh, i was looking through some of the the launches that have have originated at pad 39a you had um probably most famously all but one of the crewed apollo missions uh were from 39a um you had you know before then it was in use uh but i think apollo is what most you know at least what i think of first um of course, 39A was also the the heart of the shuttle program. The first, I think, like yep. 24 launches or something from for the shuttle program were at 39A. Uh, that Then they split between 39A and B until 2000, uh, 2006 or so. Yeah. I think seven is when the when the final the final uh, group of of shuttle launches and those were all on 39A, including the one that I saw. Yeah, yeah. so it is yeah. personal. Yeah. Love for me too. Yeah, 39B was closed a year before, even though they they kept it kind of ready to go. Um, it was the emergency backup site, right. right? Where they after after Columbia, they decided to have this system where there was always sort of a another shuttle ready to go, just in case they needed to do a rescue mission. Yeah, which uh, thankfully they never never had to do. Um, but starting or back in 2014, SpaceX signed a 20 year lease for the for the pad. I remember I remember that news broke. Um, definitely a big story. And since then, SpaceX has been working to modify the pad to launch not only the Falcon 9, but the upcoming uh, Falcon Heavy. And with their other launch uh, facility in Florida damaged from last year, they are going to be launching starting this month from 39A. So last week they had their first static test fire where they fired the rocket but clamped down. Uh, That was successful. there were some some clips of that floating around. I think Elon Musk was tweeting, you know, how historic it was and how how sort of mind boggling it was for him to be standing there. You know, this historic site. Uh, but SpaceX SpaceX will be using it uh, moving forward. And when they bring their other pad back uh, online that was damaged last year, you know, they'll have a couple of options. But um, uh, so we're getting ready to see. You know, as, as soon as I think I think they said they're going to launch either 18th or 19th sometime in there. Uh, we'll see 39A return to service, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, historic, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with Elon Musk. When you think about the history of it, it is kind of breathtaking. But also good to see, you know, SpaceX back at Kennedy doing doing things, right? Getting ready to go. Yeah. Uh, lastly, kind of our, our last bit of pre-flight checklist. We've spoken on and off about the Mars 2020 rover, the uh, the rover that will... Following Curiosity's uh, footprints or wheel prints, I guess, uh, on the Red Planet, and NASA has been talking about possible landing sites for the the rover, and they've narrowed it down to three. Uh, you have uh, Columbia Hills, which is where the Mars Exploration uh, Rover Spirit kind of ended its ended its mission. Uh, you have the Jezero Crater, which is um, thought to be home to an uh, an ancient lake. It's a similar region to where Curiosity. Uh, is so there's some similarities there, and then you have uh, an area called uh, North Northeast uh, Cytyrus, which is thought to have been warmed by like ancient volcanic activity. Uh, so three very different uh, places. Um, in reading some of this article and reading some of the material about it, there there's pros and cons to all of them. There's I think there are people who think that if you land in, in a place that's similar to where we've been before, but you have all these all these new uh, tools and, and new things on the rover, then we can learn more about things you already know and contrast that data with what we have before and build a more complete picture. But then there's there's also the argument to be had that 
uh, why don't we go somewhere we haven't been before on Mars and and spread out and spread our knowledge over more types of terrain, uh, different parts of the surface. And uh, so the uh, I think there's a, a ways before they announce the the final uh, spot, but this is kind of the agency's thinking. Um, and I think it's fun to see you know see this process um, in public that they've, they've they've done this publicly so people can. Uh, not necessarily weigh in, but you know, see the pros and cons and understand the decisions that are being made, and uh, we will know, I guess, sooner or later where they're going to end up, and uh, and uh, end up having another robot driving around on the red planet. Yeah, it's it's funny. You get the the whole. Uh, you don't want to go someplace boring, right? <laughs> so, I can see it. Yeah. So uh, so we'll see. It, it would be. Um, uh, it'll be. I think it'll be fun uh, either way. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the rover, the rover program at NASA has been incredibly successful. I was actually at lunch today, and we were talking about Spirit and Opportunity, and just uh, how long that hardware and mission lasted, or is in Opportunity's case still still going uh, past those original what, what whatever it was thirty or ninety days or something. And uh, right, and there NASA has been very successful in this on Mars, and so to have. Uh, another rover that's based on Curiosity, but with new equipment and new ways of analyzing samples, uh, hopefully will continue in that tradition of success. Yeah. Just got to find some place geologically interesting for it. There you go. Uh, you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Our our podcast this week brought to you by, in part, by Blue Apron. The number one recipe delivery service has the freshest ingredients for less than $10 a meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. The goal here is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everybody, while also supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Their seafood is sourced sustainably. Their beef, chicken, and pork comes from responsibly raised animals, and the produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Every meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes. There's not a lot of food waste. In fact, basically none because the ingredients are pre-portioned. The recipe cards are great and you can save them and make your favorite meals again later, which I really like. And you can pick and choose from what meals you want to receive. There is a, a selection every week, and you can look at it and pick, no, nah, I want this one, this one sounds good, and skip the ones that you don't. And if there's nothing that uh, looks good for you that week, that does occasionally happen where, you know, we have picky eaters in our house. Here's the thing. You can skip a week, and they don't charge you, and you just go to the next week and then pick more stuff then. So really, if you're worried that you're going to get like weird stuff that you don't want, you don't have to worry. I, I'm as picky eater as you'll find, and, and we've been using Blue Apron for more than a year. It's great. Here are some sample ideas uh, of stuff that you get from Blue Apron. There was a cashew chicken stir fry with tango, mandarins, and jasmine rice. Ate that. Loved it. That was really great. Uh, Chipotle vegetable and farro salad with avocado and crispy tortilla strips. I haven't had that one. But that sounds tasty, too. It Does it reach you? If you're in the continental United States, there is a 99% probability that it does. So you should try Blue Apron. You can check out this week's menu and get three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You will love how good it feels and tastes to make these incredible meals at home yourself. So don't wait. BlueApron.com slash liftoff. Thank you to Blue Apron for the support of the show and Relay FM. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Uh, there is a uh, an image that was floating around. I actually got 
I know something has like broken through when like several people who know I do left off, but don't necessarily listen to it. Like yeah, in my real life, uh, send me something like, Hey, like this, did you see this thing? Uh, so this is an, uh, an image of, uh, our son. It's like 3,800 pixels. I mean, it's, it's a huge image and, uh, they've got a video and it is a, a sort of a, like a condensed time-lapse of the, the sun from January 2nd, 2015 to January 28th, uh, 2016. So happy birthday to me. And it is one frame uh, every hour, so 24 frames per day. And you see uh, the sun, and you see its, um, uh, you see ejections, and you see all sorts of uh, activity in like ultra high definition. It's really uh, pretty mesmerizing. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, th- this is uh, I I I have a hard time with the sun. <laughs> like, I don't get. <laughs> the sun it is it is so big and you, you know you look at this and you're like what is what am i even seeing here and then you realize the scale of it and it's just it's it's kind of mind blowing so you know hats off to the people who who work on uh, getting us imaging of stuff like this and of course they it's all like in a particular wavelength so this is an ultraviolet view so it's not what you would see with your eyes but it is amazing to see we also have it's a grab bag it's a grab bag today uh we, we have a topic that I knew you'd be excited about. Uh, uh, is it? Does it involve landing on icy moons? It does. <laughs> well, then I am excited. Uh, Tell me more. So there, uh, there has been a, um, a report out by the NASA Science Definition Team that has been looking at a proposal for a lander on Europa. And you know, we, we talked about Europa several times. I think it's Jason's favorite place in the solar system. Uh, the, it's up there. It's up there. It's up there. Ooh, not the top. Interesting. Well, Earth. Uh, you know. nah, come on. Just, I think it's a buy. All right. Um, favorite non-Earth place in the solar system. Uh, and it is to, you know, the idea is this this moon has uh, an icy crust, but there may be a strongly believed to be a uh, water ocean underneath that crust. And it may be that the conditions are right there for life. You have uh, all the sort of ingredients that we understand are necessary, and this uh, this lander would be a uh, our first attempt to to explore that. It would it's not something like it's not going to go and drill down miles through the ice. Um, we're talking really only like four inches into the crust to collect samples. Um, we don't want to disrupt anything that may be happening there, but we want to study it at the same time. And this would be after. The proposed flyby in 2020. There's there's a, a separate mission that looks at that, um, but this would be an actual lander uh, on the surface drilling and sending back information about uh, the material that it finds there. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Emily Lakdawalla said when she was on this podcast was the idea that since there are plumes of liquid that get ejected from Europa. One of the options that we have in order to sample the ocean of Europa is to f- fly through the plumes and gather that. And so a, a flyby, which is a lot less complicated in a lot of ways than landing on a moon, right, uh, would be a way to do that kind of uh, on a on a shorter time scale. But we know that a lot of people 
including the people who fund NASA, are excited about the idea of landing on Europa, despite what happened in the movie 2010, which said, attempt no landings there. We are going to attempt a landing, it looks like. And uh, and yeah, so it's exciting because this is the number one spot on the in the solar system in terms of uh, potential potential life today, which is really interesting. And, uh, you know, Earth accepted again because well, there's probably life on Earth so far. And uh, and yeah, so so this is the first report that start. You know, boy, it takes a lot. I was going to say bureaucracy, but it really it takes a lot to fly things into space. And one of the things that needs to happen is that they have this science definition team report that sort of says here's why we would go and who, what we would lo- look for and all of those things. And uh, and and it's a, it's a, a a signpost on the way to Europa, basically. Right. And and if it were to happen. And were to be successful, the two big hurdles, as you said, uh, this could pave the ground for further exploration of Europa. So if this comes back, you know, with promising information, uh, it could lead to plans for for a lander that could drill uh, more deeply into the ice. You really were just going about and going up and going to scratch the surface a little bit. But it could be that this is the the groundwork for uh, future more involved missions, which would be. Uh, be exciting. These things, you know, so often you have to start something simple and small, and, and if you can justify it, do more. And so what we're talking about the the rover uh, program, for instance, you know, started far simpler than what they're going to fly in 2020. The um, I think it's that's uh, I think interesting to me here is just that I mean, obviously it's that whole um, life aspect, and that it's so far out. We talked about this when we did the moon draft. I think that it's so far out. It's so different from what. We know here it, it sort of bends our concept of the uh, the, the habitable zone, but all the all the necessary ingredients are there. And if we go and, and scratch on the surface and see anything promising, then it could it could really change uh, just so many basic things that we understand about the solar system. Uh, yep, it's it's uh it's exciting, and you know if they do as as uh the astronomer Mike Brown says, if they find you know whale bones on Europa, basically, if they have that moment of like, oh my God, there is probably something there. It looks like there might be something there. That's when they kick it into high gear, yeah. and, and start talking about how do we get a like a submarine probe down into Europa. Yeah, the, I would imagine the funding would be no problem at that point. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, Spend all the money. This week's episode is also uh, made possible by Ministry of Supply. We all know what it's like to spend over 40 hours a week in uncomfortable work clothing. They're restrictive and unbreathable, not to mention by the end of the day, they're all wrinkly, which is no fun. Ministry of Supply fixes this. They make performance clothes for the modern day workplace. Now, Ministry of Supply was launched by MIT engineers, and they combine human-centric research, performance technology, and tailored design to create wear-to-work clothes for men and women, like dress shirts, blouses, and pants. Their garments work with our bodies to provide maximum comfort, combined with features like temperature control, wrinkle resistance, and extreme stretch to give you a sharp, professional look all day long. Ministry Supplies Future Ford dress shirt has NASA-invented fibers that regulate body temperature based on your surroundings. Uh, And they make socks now, too. The smarter dress socks are made of coffee fiber that wick sweat and absorb odor, and they provide extreme cushion, way more padding than your regular gym socks. Ministry Supply offers free shipping, free returns, and a 100-day no-questions-asked return policy. To find out more and to get 15% off your first purchase, 
go to ministryofsupply.com slash liftoff. Or, and this is super cool, you can visit any of their nine retail stores. They're in cities like San Francisco, Atlanta, and Chicago. And you mentioned this show, Liftoff. You can also claim your 15% off in person. Thank you so much to Ministry of Supply for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. All right, you want to take us to Venus? Uh, you know, uh, you know how much I love Venus. Uh, it's not a very nice place, as we have talked about several times. It, it, it's uh, it's close though. It's very close. So this the 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 story that we're going to put in the show notes, you can get to at relay.fm/liftoff/forty, is about a computer for Venus. Sort of, sort of the uh, the the note you write wrote was a uh, NASA's Venus computer. Yeah. So we're sending a computer to Venus. It's a laptop. Yeah. It's gonna no. So Venus is bad, right? Venus is really bad. It's um uh, like almost 900 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 470 degrees Celsius, and uh, incredibly high pressure because it's got that incredibly thick atmosphere. So it's like you're 900 meters down in the ocean it's bad it's a bad place we've sent probes there uh, lots of soviet probes we have they have not really lasted more than two hours that like two hours and that's it and then they are crushed and basically dissolved in the uh hot enough to melt lead so they get they they melt and are crushed and whatever's left is like a pancake on the surface of venus (laughs) it's not good no so one of the real challenges uh with sending a probe to venus is that uh computer technology that we use does not work there because a silicon chip um can cannot really get up up above about 250 celsius before um the electrons can just jump around in the semiconductor and uh then it just stops working like very specifically uh the the physics of how chips work breaks down so um what happened what the russians did was that they had these uh like sealed chambers and they were like pre-cooled by the orbiter so that they would start out cool as they went down like they take the orbiter takes the probe out of the fridge and then drops it into into venus so there's a there's some new technology that's uh based on silicon carbide uh the military likes this stuff because it uh, it supports high voltages and temperatures. And guess what? That means it's one of these yet another sort of military spinoff thing. That means it could also work on Venus. So uh, NASA also um, has, uh, has apparently figured out how to deal with interconnects, which are the wires that connect transistors and other stuff together, and so that they can also survive on Venus. So the idea is you take those silicon uh, uh, carbide chips... And these new uh, interconnects, you make a like a ceramic chip pass, uh, package that they call the Glen because it's from the Glen Research Center Extreme Environments Rig, and um, and that is basically a little Venus in a box, and they got it to work for like many days, if not weeks. So they feel like, although it's going to be risky and it's a challenging environment. It sounds like we are better equipped today than ever before to send something down there. Probably not going to be a rover because, boy, we're just trying to stay from being crushed, basically. But um, it's but it's possible they're actually working on something that would like be like a sail a sail 
ship sail barge i don't even know what it would be <laughs> like a little land sail thingy desert sailboat guy but um but yeah this means that you know potentially you could make a rugged device that could land on on venus and give us more than two hours of life basically which is you know a lot you can see the science that happens even in a, just a probe that is not a, a rover if you get to look around and and dig up stuff and and analyze it and all of that and that's not possible if your computer is going to die after two hours right and it's been i mean it's been a long time since any human built hardware has been on the surface right it was yeah, basically I mean, that venera 13 was like in the what the 80s early 80s yeah it's a long time yeah and uh and so, like this article points out, the technology has to get better, but through a lot of material science and um, and like industri- the industrial side of things has gotten better too. And so, like they both have to improve, right? The the technology has to be better, the chips have to be better, um, but whatever you put in has to be better too. And it seems like those things are are maybe uh, evolving in a way where we could go back, which. Um, which would be great. I mean, it's been a long time and that was, uh, you know, just thinking how far technology has, has advanced, how much more we could learn about our, our, our next door neighbor would be cool. Yeah, it's good. Another example of, uh, of, uh, how the, yeah, March of scientific progress sometimes works the other direction where the tech improves and then our scientific understanding improves and it happens in telescopes. It happens in lots of different places, but this is a fun example of like opening up a window into exploration that we previously just couldn't do. Right. I think that about does it. Yeah, I think so. That's a, that's a nice little little update. It's your time for your time for your uh, liftoff uh, potpourri, your grab bag, like you said. But we'll be back in a fortnight with uh, another little explainer about part of our solar system, mm-hmm. which should be exciting. Yeah. If you want to find links to all the stuff we talked about today, you can do so on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 40 you get in touch with us there there's an email link you can find us on twitter jason is at jason l and you can find me there as ismh until our next fortnight jason say goodbye bye everybody adios adios